This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, I am told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Renteria, it's a high drive. Deep left center field. David Murphy going back. He's on the warning track. It is good! Edgar Renteria has hit a three-run homer against Cliff Lee. And the Giants lead here in the World Series, 3 to nothing. Back at it, Friday morning means play-by-play cast. It is episode number 86 here today. My name is Joel Gaudet, and this is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast, diving into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. You can find us on social media at PXPCast. You can find me on social media at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T, or you can hit me up via email, J G O D. E-T-T at bsu.edu. That is at BSU for Ball State University. BSU.edu. Hope you enjoyed the conversation last week with Jones Angel from North Carolina. Got some good response on that one. Uh, Eric Reed from the Miami Heat the week before that. Uh, and Schatz from Pac-12 Networks uh, was our guest on episode 83. And uh, the downloads for her episode have been phenomenal. I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, it's one of my favorite. It's probably in the top top 10, top 15 we've done on the pod. So uh, if you have a chance to go back through, if you're new, uh, do go through and check that one out. All 85 previous guests are archived for you uh, if you've just joined the podcast. And, you know, it's one of those things where we've been doing this for two years now, almost two years. So it's easy to kind of forget the... <laughs> The earlier guests that we've had on the podcast, because there have been so many since then, but if you're fairly new to listening to play-by-playcast, uh, do yourself a favor and go back to episodes, you know, one with Carter Blackburn or uh, two, I think, was Andy Demetra uh, at Georgia Tech and Ben Holden of CBS Sports Network was one of the early episodes. Uh, but even, I mean, Bill Hillgrove. Uh, Pittsburgh Steelers and Pittsburgh um, Panthers was episode nine. Bob Sosi, uh, who's going to be calling the Super Bowl this week. He was one of the early episodes. Adam Amin, Joe Davis, they were all uh, really early on. So some really uh, good conversations scrolling all the way back through the archives. If you have just recently found play by play cast. Our guest today is Dave Fleming, where he's known uh, mostly nationally for his work with ESPN, but also his work with the San Francisco Giants, where he works alongside John Miller, guy that he grew up listening to uh, when John Miller was with the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, Dave has had a very uh, rapid rise in this industry, and rightfully so, because he, he's, he's awesome. Um, but at, at just 26 years old, Dave Fleming was in the major leagues. He was with the San Francisco Giants after four seasons of minor league baseball. He went to undergrad at Stanford. Uh, We'll talk about his path with that because it's different and interesting uh, compared to a lot of people in the industry and a lot of people we talk to uh, on this podcast. But after graduating Stanford, went to Syracuse, did his grad work there. From there, went to Visalia, 
He was the broadcaster for the Visalia Oaks in the California League for a year and then got the Pawtucket Red Sox job where he worked with Andy Freed for three seasons. Both those guys are now obviously in the major leagues as is virtually everybody who gets a job with the Pawtucket Red Sox. It's kind of that, uh, it's got that moniker as being the the great feeder from the minor leagues uh, into Major League Baseball with all of the, the fantastic people that have come out of there. Uh, so after just a year in minor league baseball, Dave Fleming's in Pawtucket after three, he's in the majors, and, uh, and, and he'll talk a little bit about how that all came to be. But he's had no shortage of awesome opportunities and awesome moments to call which is just kind of crazy when you think about it. Uh, he gets to the big leagues, and obviously Barry Bonds provides a lot of those moments. Um, he called Barry Bonds' 715th home run. Uh, he called half of Barry Bonds' 715th home run before the mic famously cut out. Uh, you can find the audio of that. Uh, NPR did a, a little story on it and, uh, and interviewed Dave about that. Uh, but he called 755. We'll talk about that on the podcast. Uh, Kevin Millwood threw a no-hitter. I think his second game in the major leagues was against the Phillies and, and, and Dave Fleming called a no hitter. He's called the world series. He's called a perfect game. Matt Cain's perfect game. Uh, he's done a ton. Uh, and he's also done some uh, collegiate work as well with Stanford as alma mater, where for a while he served as the broadcaster for football and basketball uh, before he jumped uh, more full time to, to ESPN. So uh, in just a short amount of time, and I say that now, you know, Dave's 41 years old, but, you know, 15 years, 15, 16 years, he's, he's done a lot, seen a lot, um, and had a lot of interesting insight to share. So uh, a guy that I was excited to be able to talk to uh, earlier this week for, for about a half an hour. And without further ado, we'll dive right in. Dave Fleming joins us this week on this edition of Play by Playcast. My first job out of college was to call games for the Visalia Oaks in minor league baseball, very small town in central California. And we had, I think three full-time employees with the team, very small operation. So we, we, I broadcast the games, but I painted the stadium and changed kegs in the (laughs) concession stands and vacuumed the clubhouse and did all the stuff that you do in the minor leagues. And I, I did one year there and I've got hired by the, the Paw Sox after one year in Visalia and that was a big jump up in terms of, you know, the level of the operation and the number of people actually listening to games and exposure to the big league team and all, all that stuff. So that was a big leap for me uh, to go from uh, sort of low minor league ball to, you know, one of the top teams in the minor leagues. And uh, so I did that at a young age and, and worked uh, for three years with the Paw Sox while I was there the great uh, Hall of Fame broadcaster for the Giants, Lon Simmons, had been doing uh, about 40 games a year for the Giants, kind of semi-retirement. John Miller would go off to do Sunday Night Baseball for ESPN, and Lon would mostly just come in on the weekends and kept him involved, and it was a great gig for him. And finally, after the uh, 2 World Series that the Giants lost, the Angels, Lon just said, "I'm retiring. I'm go- moving to Maui. I'm not doing any games anymore. It's time to go play. Time to go play golf," which sounds like a pretty good uh, retirement plan. So Lon moved to Hawaii, and the Giants decided to hire four uh, inexperienced young younger broadcasters to patch those 40 or so games. So they gave each of us 
a package of, of 10 games. I had sent my CD into KNBR into the Giants front office and they somehow, you know, listened and said, Hey, we're going to make you one of those four guys. So they, they offered me some games and I did a, a weekend series in Philadelphia for the Giants, my first, uh, major league games. And that turned into a series in St. Louis and that turned into a, a home series late in the year. And that turned into an offer to, to do the games full time. So it was, it, they, they gave me a chance to do basically two games and, uh, I did a good enough job on those first two games that uh, ultimately they hired me full time. This might be a weird question to answer about yourself, um, but reflecting back, particularly on on the Pawtucket years, and, and I even guess uh, when you first got in with the Giants, uh, what do you think was your strength? Um, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, as a young broadcaster, that helped you stand out and that helped you um, obviously get the Paw Sox job a year in, and then and then get to where you were in San Francisco. Yeah, I think uh, a couple things. Number one, I was not, uh, as a broadcaster, and maybe it was just I was naive enough, uh, I was not trying to uh, impress anybody on the air with how much I knew. I was just trying to call the game cleanly. And I think a mistake that a lot of young broadcasters make is they go on air and want to empty their notebook of all the stuff that they researched and they want to show everybody how much they know about the game and about the players and about, and mostly if you put yourself in the experience of listening or watching a game, you don't want that as a, as a listener or a viewer. Mostly you just want to enjoy the game, uh, have the announcer help make the most exciting moments sound more exciting, learn a few things on the way. But, uh, you know, you don't want to be inundated or overwhelmed with like a barrage of stuff. And I think uh, partially because I hadn't had a lot of professional training and hadn't been around a lot of other uh, young or more experienced broadcasters, I was just trying to call the games and get better at that. And I think ultimately that did really help me. I think another uh, underrated part of succeeding as a young person in any business, but in uh, this business uh, also is I was, I mean, it sounds sort of silly, but I was presentable. I was friendly. I could look people in the eye and have a normal conversation. Like I looked like and acted like a normal, uh, <laughs> mature person. And I, I think that came across when people would meet me. It's like, Oh, that guy, that was an impressive young guy. He was nice to talk to. He was, he had his stuff together. And, uh, and I think that's an underrated part of all of this is people have to like you and want to be around you. And, uh, I'm not saying I'm like the most world, most likable guy, but, but at a young age, I think I was, uh, somebody who could relate to people of different, I could relate to the grownups who were doing the hiring, the players who were doing the playing, uh, and, and I think, you know, maybe, maybe in a way, the fact that I had a different academic background, I was an ancient Greek language major, uh, at Stanford and, uh, and people always like sort of looked at me funny when they found that out or <laughs> if they knew that already, but it made them kind of remember me. It was like, oh yeah, that's the, that's the kid, that's the Stanford kid who studied something really strange. And, oh yeah, I kind of, I, I remember him. I kind of talking to him, um, uh, yeah, I, I do think, and that's a hard thing to put your finger on, but that 
likability factor when you're a young guy trying to get a job is pretty important. And I think that I at least had that, whether I credit my mom and dad for that or, or whoever, like I could look people in the eye and have a normal conversation. And, and I think in a lot of cases, my peers struggled with that. And I think that gave me an advantage. Why'd you study uh, what you studied? I, I, I think classics, I think I saw was like the, one of the official titles for yeah. it. Uh, what took you down that path? And I guess, was radio something that was on your radar at that point? Or, or how did those two things mesh together? Yeah, I was never a kid who I, I was not the kid sitting in front of my TV uh, doing practice games as a 10 year old. I mean, I, that just was not me. I grew up in Washington, D.C. My parents had worked on Capitol Hill. My dad was a lawyer, like very serious stuff. I, I grew up sort of thinking I would do something serious. You know, I'd go to school and I'd go to law school and I'd work on Capitol Hill or I'd, uh, you know, whatever it was that I was going to do. Uh, it never really occurred to me that I would broadcast sports for a living. <laughs> Uh, so when I got to Stanford, I, I was going to miss sports in general. Like uh, I told my freshman advisor my first week that I was on campus as a freshman, I said, you know, the one thing I'm going to miss is playing sports, being around sports. I'm obviously not good enough to play sports at Stanford. Uh, so that, you know, that's kind of I'm, I'm going to miss that. And he said, you know, I've had some students who uh, worked for the student radio station. They really loved it. Let me make a call. He called me back a couple days later and said, Hey, next Tuesday they're having their informational meeting down uh, in the basement of Memorial Auditorium. You should stop by seven o'clock or whatever. I mean, literally, my freshman <laughs> advisor is the guy who who told me that, and uh, and so in some ways, I guess I owe him my whole career because I did that and uh, and picked it up as a hobby. There, it was a really neat group of people, uh, several others, many others actually from that group of probably ten or twelve people who were down in the basement that night uh my the fall of my freshman year have gone on to work in the business and uh we had no faculty supervision we got no academic credit it wasn't connected in any way to anything uh academic at the school it was just a hobby it was like a club but we had an actual station and the athletic department let us call the games and so uh, that's how I got started and just really fell in love with it. I just really enjoyed doing it. It was fun. The, the, the school stuff, I, I, I studied Latin in high school. So I, same kind of deal. I show up on campus, not knowing anybody, not really not knowing one person at the whole school. And, uh, I, 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 I'd never even seen Stanford when I applied, I got admitted and finally went out and looked at it. Um, and I, so I just was curious and I, 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 I liked my high school Latin stuff. So I went to the classics department and it was, it was great. It was like this whole fully funded, fully staffed academic department within this giant university that felt like a small college. And I, and I immediately thought, well, this, this would be a good uh, academic experience. So I, I feel like I kind of went to a small school within a big university. They gave me a key my freshman year to the building, I could go in at night whenever I wanted to study in the classics department library. And I knew my professors right away and I just loved it. So I, I wasn't really thinking about professional training or anything. I just was thinking this is really fun and interesting and enjoyable. And so, so my academic career was not very professionally motivated at that point. Does it help you in hindsight that your more worldly or I guess well-rounded have other interests does that make you a better broadcaster just in terms of being able to apply 
you know, outside information or just kind of have a broader perspective on what you're watching? I sure hope so. I mean, I think that's one of our main jobs in doing play-by-play is not getting lost in the details, having a better sort of editorial sense of what are what what's at stake, what's important, what's interesting, what isn't. Uh, and I think training your brain to, to work like that, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, just by experience – uh, is a really good thing for people in our job, and uh, so I hope that I hope that's the case because uh, I do feel like uh, that uh, that's one of my strengths as a broadcaster is processing information and editorializing and figuring out what's interesting and what's not. And I think when you do that, whether it's through literature or math or econ or whatever, you 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 sort of train your mind to work that way, and it translates to everything else you do. So I hope so. For those of us that made the mistake of being broadcast majors, um, and I and I say that just in terms of uh, you know, I mean, I, I kind of look back at, at the the path I took, and you know, I wouldn't change it, but I would I would love to go back and take some different courses on the side and kind of give myself some different emphases in some different areas in addition to that as well. Um, what I mean, what do you do nowadays, just in terms of like? You know, not to steal a Katie Couric question, but like, what what do you read, uh, and and how do you how do you uh, how do you broaden your horizons even now today to apply that to what you do? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked that question because I do. It makes me sad when I hear from, or you know, sometimes I'll read an interview, or he, or just in the course of conversation with my peers, my colleagues about, well, I don't have time to read. I don't, you know, I'm too busy prepping and traveling and. Uh, like man really like like you don't want to have the full human experience like <laughs> your job your job is so all consuming that you can't take time to to read some literature or whatever so i mean you know i i read fiction i read nonfiction i read uh you know sports books i read non sports books i read the new york times sunday edition cover to cover every week i mean i just feel like that First of all, that's what I want to do. So, like, I never would, I never would want to have my professional life uh, so overwhelm the rest of my existence that I wouldn't be immersed in stuff that I find interesting. That would just be a really silly and boring way to go through life. Second of all, I think you know half of the prep work that those of us do is is unnecessary anyway. I'm not saying don't be prepared. That would be a bad message to to impart on people trying to do this job, but yeah, like there's, there's definitely overkill in our business. And I think the point that you're making sort of generally about like, be a person of the world like that may, that may help you get ready for a sports broadcast just as much as studying some media guide bio of some player, uh, having an understanding of what's going on uh, around you, I, I think is a good thing. It's a public job. It's a job, uh, where, I mean, it's not a pure show business job, but it's a job where you're interacting with a mass number of people in the world, communicating with them and, and having an understanding of a lot of that stuff, I think is a part of it. On the prep side of things, um, how would you do a game? You know, you talked about, you know, when you first started doing this, not being the, the, the young broadcaster, that's just going to unload their chart, um, and focus on what's in front of you. How would you do a game if you didn't prep? I guess is the, the, the juxtap of that. I mean, if you had to sit down, what is most important to you beyond your boards or your, or your scorebook um, that you, 
needed to highlight first and foremost? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would make the point that every single one of us can and should do a game that way just to experience it. I'm not, you know, maybe you got to know some play, depending on the sport, you got to commit some numbers to memory or watch practice to, to, to be able to call up names and numbers quickly. I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying zero <laughs> prep, but I think, I think almost everybody in our business could benefit from doing a game without any of that stuff. Uh, and what that does for you is it trains you to actually watch what's happening beyond either the numbers or some preconceived storyline. Watch who's playing well, who's not playing well, what's working, what's not working, what's the coach thinking about, what's the manager uh, angling to accomplish, uh, you know, how is the pitcher going after the hitter second time versus the first time. It just forces you you pay attention to the details of the game. Some of those details of the game are not interesting, just like some of the prep bio stuff is not interesting. But some of it really is fascinating and can make any sporting event come to life. And uh, and I think that is what so many people fail in my job at is actually noticing that stuff that's going on during the game. And when you're a play-by-play guy, the more of those things that you notice, the more you can engage your analyst and get your analyst to an interesting place where he or she is commenting on something maybe a little bit out of the box or different from what they would have thought coming into the game. I mean, I think it plays into making an interesting broadcast in a lot of different ways. Uh, and it's an exercise that everybody, I tell every young broadcaster who comes to me for advice or how do I get better or what should I be doing or and I tell every single one of them especially sort of at the college or real learning level do games without media notes do games without learn how to do a game where you're not leaning on any of that stuff and still find ways to make it interesting and then as you get better at it more experienced then you fold in some background stories, some bio info, stuff that that makes the thing come to life, makes people care about who they're watching, who's playing even more. Do all that later, but learn how to call the game at a more basic level first. I think that's a really good lesson for anybody. I feel like conventionally, you know, basketball, football might be easier on that note just because there's more game action um, than it would be to do baseball that way. Um, so if you can kind of dive into the baseball side of that for me, how would you, or, or I, I don't know, maybe, how would you suggest that somebody maybe watches baseball smarter if they're able to do a game without prep, the things that they can look for beyond ball strike, guy on first, he's got a lead? Yeah, another uh, another good question. Um, I, think, I think if everybody who broadcasts baseball treated a pitch like everybody who broadcasts football treats a snap in a football game, that baseball would be broadcast better, would be consumed better, would be considered a more interesting sport. I mean, way too often a pitch is just sort of blown off as a non-action. And every single pitch in the game is important. Every one. And you could, you can go overboard with that. Like over 162 games, if you micromanaged every pitch thrown, you would probably drive your viewers or listeners insane. But the point still remains that 
each pitch, the pitcher's trying to accomplish something. The hitter's trying to look for something, take advantage of a mistake. And if you can make that come to life, whether it's pitch sequencing, pitch location, what a guy's good at, what is he's not good at, what's the pitcher working on that day that's not working, I, those are the things that help make a baseball game come to life. If you treat a pitch as background noise until the ball gets put in play, then baseball is really boring. Then it's just sort of the sound of the foul ball or the ball hitting the catcher's mitt and everything else is just kind of just sitting around. If, if each action by the pitcher and the hitter is part of that essence of the game, the strategy of how are you going to get me out? How am I going to get a hit off you? How am I going to accomplish something here at the plate? To me, the whole game comes to life. The whole strategy and point of the sport comes to life. And that's where I think that so many baseball broadcasters fail, whether it's by on television just talking over pitches that tell some stupid story that doesn't mean anything or by just purely, you know, fastball, outside ball one. Uh, you know, this guy went to this junior college and uh, like, okay, what, what did the fastball mean? What, you know, did he miss his target? Was that what he was trying to do? Did the catcher's mitt move away from where he intended to throw the ball? Does that tell you anything about what the pitcher thinks about the hitter? What about the first time that guy was up? Did he hit a fastball to get his double? So now the pitcher is reluctant to throw him another fastball or he's doubling down on that. Like there are just so many things that if you pay attention to the details of can help you along. And I think the other point of all of this is that not every second of every broadcast has to be filled with talk. So even though people, and I think you're right about it, it can be more of a challenge to take this approach doing a baseball game. You don't, you, you, you don't have to be afraid of letting the game breathe and letting either the sounds on a radio broadcast or the pictures on a television broadcast help carry you. I mean, those things can be interesting and it's okay to not fill every moment with something. And so it's a combo of looking for the details in the pitcher hitter battle. I mean, look, defense is interesting too. How a guy's being positioned or, uh, you know, base runner or whatnot, but the essence of the sport of baseball is the pitcher on the mound, the hitter in the batter's box. How am I getting this guy out? And every pitch is a part of that story. And if you know what you're looking for, you can help make that battle come to life. How's working with John Miller made you better? Yeah, much better. I mean, I think John does that as well as anybody. And yeah. John appreciates that <laughs> aspect of the game more, more than anybody. And I think I already had that tendency when I started to work with John. But uh, John, I mean, John's first advice to me when I showed up in Philadelphia whatever year that, you know, 2003 to do my first major league game, John literally physically picked up the game notes and threw them in the garbage and said, don't, don't lean on this stuff. Just call the game. Interesting. And it was great advice for a young guy. Uh, and you know, I mean, you can put it however you want it. look up, not down. Don't be looking down, look up at what you're supposed to be watching. However you want to put it, uh, it was it was great advice, and so I think he has emphasized that in me, which was always what I found more interesting about the sport anyway, but uh, but he's really helped me with that. How did you guys develop the rapport that you have as well, um, just so that, you, that you're, I mean, more one person than you are two? 
Yeah, I, you know, I think part of it is also John is very much a person who, I mean, John has a wonderful sense of humor. He loves storytelling. John tells more stories than I do. And part of that is sort of my role in our broadcast team. Uh, you know, there's only so much room for that. And that's not my role in our partnership. Maybe I do that a little more when I'm not with John. But um, but aside from that, I mean, I think we have the same sort of sensibility, sense of humor. So part of it is just connecting on a personal level where uh, he and I find the same stuff funny or interesting and that leads to other conversations uh i you know and, and then when i mean i don't know how many games he and i have done together but 2000 uh <laughs> a lot of games yeah, that helps <laughs> so over, over that time right you learn what somebody else might be looking for or uh you know i have a sense of okay i saw something on that play i bet john would find that interesting too and i think that helps make it sound like uh, the two of us are are so much in sync. On a on a partner level as well, and this was just, and I'm curious because this was a critique that I got of myself a week ago, um, and probably a lot of people that are are on the younger side of things uh, are in this boat too. Um, how do you best work with a partner, and how do you how do you best tee them up? Um, not necessarily asking a direct question every time, but. Um, and I guess this is probably more of a basketball football question, uh, but set them up to do their thing versus just leaving the space for them to do their thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think part of it is almost what you were referring to there. Part of it is not at, I think it's a very poor way to do it by just asking out and out questions. Uh, because I think that that, and you know, a lot of those lead to a dead end or, Either you, you're asking that question and you already kind of know the answer. The way that I like to do it is I make my own sort without being the analyst. I don't want to be the analyst, but I make my own observations very succinctly, but about what I'm watching and just let the analyst react to that. If I see something that I think is good or bad, but noteworthy, I might just point it out and see what the reaction is rather than making a, uh, asking a direct question about it, just make a comment about it or point it out and see. And sometimes it doesn't like sometimes the analyst isn't interested in that and that's okay. Just move on. You don't need to deliver <laughs> the point. Uh, but I, you know, I think it all kind of ties together with paying attention to those details of what you're seeing so that maybe something sticks out to you that either wouldn't to the person at home or the analyst somehow missed because he was looking at something else or, uh, you know, just having a sense for what that person might uh, have an opinion about without, you know, asking a dead end sort of question where you're going to get one answer and one answer only. I think it's much more interesting when you leave things a little more open-ended. The analyst can totally surprise you with something that, that they observe or say, and that those are some of the best TV moments, I think. Some of that is probably off-air questioning, too, and, and is it having a feel of where your analyst is comfortable, what they know, where you can lead them, and, and how you can inorganically create those organic moments, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's probably true, like having a sense for their personality or what they're interested in or their feelings for the sport or opinions about the sport. I mean, if, if I'm doing a football game with... Uh, Chris Spielman, you know, what he's interested in is a lot different than what 
you know, uh, somebody else that uh, I've done a bunch of games with would, would be interested in almost anybody else. I mean, like the differences in what guys pay attention to and find interesting are vast. And so that is probably true. I think there's also something to be said. I mean, Bill Walton takes it to an extreme, but when I work with Bill, which I, I don't do a ton anymore, uh, and I used to do a lot of games together, uh, Bill would not want to talk about anything related to the broadcast ahead of time. Nothing. <laughs> There'd be no, no rehearsal. No. Uh, hey, what do you think about this guy? Save it for the game. What do you think about? No, he just didn't want to talk. He wanted to save it for more, for something more spontaneous, which I think he's onto something. I mean, I do think that uh, you can, you can have too much of sort of, Hey, uh, you like this about Jawan Morgan? You know, I'm, I'm here in Ohio State. Well, while you and I are talking. We've got Indiana, Ohio State. So pick a player on one of those teams, uh, Dan Dockage. You like this about him, and then maybe that chokes you off from something a little more interesting during the actual game. So I think there is something to be said for not doing a lot of pre-planning uh, and and letting those things happen a little more organically. Hard to do. Sometimes in television where you have a full production team that needs some advanced warning that needs to know at least, you know, in general, like what are the stuff we're going to be talking about so we can have visuals to support it. So it's not always easy to do, easy to pull off. You really have to have a, an adroit production team that can move quickly on the fly and follow what you're doing and listen to you to really pull that off. But I think if you have that, that can produce some of the best uh, sports television. Dave, I know I've got to let you go here soon, but I, I would be remiss if I did not ask um, about Barry Bonds before uh, before we wrap this up. So I'm uh, I'm curious from a broadcaster standpoint what it was like covering him, particularly um, at the end of the home run chase, and knowing that there were a lot of uh, ears on you, and knowing that it was a big stage and you were dealing with historic moments going into it. Um, so I, I guess kind of the excitement of being a broadcaster, what it was like seeing it, but I guess the I don't know, professional pressures of being in those spots as well and maybe thriving in those moments. Yeah, it was really good for me at a young age. I mean, that was right away. My first year, uh, you know, Bonds had uh, one of the all-time great, all-time great seasons and hit number, I guess that year hit number 660 to pass or to tie Willie Mays 661 to go ahead of him and started, you know, making his assault on 700 and, uh, so that year we had a lot of milestone home runs. Every home run was a big home run. It was good training for a young guy. There was also at that time, uh, all of the controversy was starting to really, uh, flame up with the Balco stuff. So there was extra attention, uh, sort of circus attention to what was going on, which also was a challenge as a young broadcaster. Um, Ultimately, you know, my job as a local announcer in that instance was probably different than if I had been a network announcer where our local Giants fans just mostly just wanted to appreciate what he was doing and did not want to get bogged down in the politics of it all mm. day to day. There was there was maybe a place for that, uh, you know, in a different circumstance, but in game, in at bat. Barry was such a, a unbelievably charismatic player that every single time he came up felt like a huge event. Every time, uh, no matter what the game, no matter how good or not good the team was, 
every time he came to the plate was a huge deal in a way that is probably forgotten now, uh, even not that many years later. Um, but I, I hope, you know, ultimately people strain themselves to remember what, what that was like. I mean, maybe McGuire and Sosa, when they were at the very height of their uh, abilities uh, and, and controversies, and maybe now we're getting another taste of that with Judge. And who knows, now that Stanton is in a Yankees uniform, maybe that'll be the case with him. Where every single at-bat is an event. You can't miss it. you got to watch it. And that's what it was like for with Barry for many, many years. And it was good. It made me better. It was great. It was, it was great to be around. Barry was not the you know, most uh, friendly guy to be around, but it was, it was incredible training for how to handle a big moment and the pressures of it and have people listening to every word that you say and parse down everything that you say. And did you mean this? Did, it, it taught me how to, to, to mean what I say and be direct and be in the moment. It was, those were all good things for me when I was just still really starting out. You did 755. Is that right? Yeah, seven fifty-five uh, to in San Diego to tie. I did do that. I didn't do seven fifty-six, but I did do seven fifty-five. What was that moment like, and and what did you think uh, of the way that that I guess you performed in that moment? And, and kind of, I, I know as broadcasters, we all get in our own heads sometimes about how's it going to sound, how did it come out? Um, what did you think as you did it, and what did you think afterward? Yeah, I mean, I really did try to not. Uh, script anything out or pre-plan what I was going to say. And I think I did a good job of the call, mostly because the, the home run was, I mean, it was a strange home run. Barry hit so many, like the call should be different if he hits it 500 feet and off the scoreboard, or in this instance, a little opposite field line drive that made it over the wall by like a foot. I mean, it, and and that should be reflected in the call, even though, you can step back and say, well, it's a huge home run. Nobody in the end is going to care about that. I mean, it's, it's radio play by play. I think, I think the, the, the circumstance of the home run should be a part of the call. And I think it was in that instance. And the, the circumstance of the fans, everybody stood up in, it was in a visiting ballpark, but the whole place erupted and Padres fans and Giants fans together were standing up as he rounded the bases and there was this incredible sort of feel and buzz, even in a visiting ballpark. And I think that was reflected in the call. I mean, I don't, I don't totally remember the call, but um, so I think I did a good job. I mean, I wasn't trying to make it the greatest home run call of all time. Uh, I was just trying to do the moment some justice. And I hope I did that. Dave, uh, I really appreciate uh, you taking some time, especially on a game day. So I know I've got to let you go. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for asking good questions. I enjoyed it, Joel. (laughs) That's Dave Fleming joining us here on Play by Playcast. You know, I think the thing that will stick with me more than anything from that conversation, and there's always like one thing from each of these chats that we do that still sits with you, and it can be totally random over the course of of these interviews. I mean, Kevin Brown, when we did his interview uh, from ESPN several weeks back, talked about doing improv classes, and uh, we talked about with Jones Angel last week. Um, That has stuck with me. Like, I I have signed up for improv classes in March based on that conversation. I use the program Evernote to help with my preparation because Josh Wetzel mentioned it. Like, that's, if nothing else, 
Like, that's the one, like, one thing that still uh, is with me. Uh, there's, there's that one thing from every conversation. With Dave Fleming, read something. Like, it's, it's just incredible. And, and he makes a great point, just in terms of being worldly. Like, I go home, I don't watch a ton of sports. And if I watch sports, it's because I want to watch the broadcasters. And I'm trying to see how people handle different things and do different things. I watch the World Series. I watch the Super Bowl. I put football on on Sundays in the background. But, like, sports for me is not appointment viewing. I I watch other stuff. Um, Some of it's garbage television and some of it is is better television. Um, Like, where I can learn something or be exposed to different aspects of pop culture. Uh, I try to read as much as possible. I don't enough, which I now feel bad about <laughs> with with the way that Dave framed it in this episode, but uh, you read a book, like try to expand your your vocabulary that way. Um I I I tried to drop a Miss Marple reference on a broadcast uh, earlier this week, because I love to read Agatha Christie, and I wound up saying Marla Maples, which is not the same thing. But, you know, <laughs> broaden your horizons and be able to, to I mean, sometimes just pull things from literature or pull things from great movies of the classics or great TV shows. Um, and if it doesn't work on air, then, like, just be a more well-rounded person. Uh, I mean... You can't find a better example than the way that Dave Fleming puts all of that together and kind of packaged it up here on uh, here on this podcast. Oftentimes, I'll tell you how to get in touch with guys or I'll ask them uh, how to get in touch with them via Twitter and whatnot. Uh, I did not ask Dave uh, at, at the end of that interview, but if you're curious and you wanted to reach out to him, uh, you wanted to let him know you heard his interview here on Play by Playcast. Uh, Dave's Twitter is at Fleming Dave. So at his name backward, um, at Fleming Dave, we'll get you uh, in touch with uh, with Dave Fleming, uh, who thanks again for being our guest here on episode 86 of Play by Playcast. Uh, exciting interview coming up soon on the podcast. If you're listening to this on time, if you're listening to this on Friday morning, there's a solid chance I am currently on the phone with Joe Tate, which will be really fun. Joe is obviously like really good, kind of the gold standard in basketball broadcasting and has come up many times on this podcast as someone that people have admired and looked up to and sometimes gotten into the business because uh, of him and his influence. So I was excited uh, that I got the opportunity to uh, to talk to him. So Joe Tate's interview is going to be coming up uh, not next week, but the week after that. Steve Martin from the Charlotte Hornets uh, had a chance to sit down with him. Uh, at his hotel when the Hornets were in town to play the Pacers this week. So uh, Steve Martin will be coming up next week. And then Joe Tate will be coming up the week after that. So a couple good guests uh, coming up still and, uh, and a really good one today. Dave Fleming joining us here on PXPCast. They're playing the music though, so that is my go-home cue. We're out until next Friday. Hit it, Marshmallow. This is Play by Playcast. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.